Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, Bernie Sanders enters the 2020 presidential fray. Will everything he built in his 2016 campaign follow him to this new one? Plus, Donald Trump's re-election campaign seems to be in full swing. We've got some interesting details on what's going on there on the other side of the 2020 aisle. As always, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's February the 21st, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We've got Nerdcast regular Charlie Matessian, senior politics editor at Politico. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Scott. We've got two members of our 2020 team here on the line from Chicago. We've got Natasha Karecki. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Scott. And in the studio for the first time, Holly Otterbein. Hey, Scott. How you doing? Good to be here. Welcome. All right, let's jump right into our first data point this week. It's 5.9 million. And that's $5.9 million that Bernie Sanders raised in 24 hours after announcing his presidential run. That's the most by far that we've seen from any candidate so far. That money came from 220,000 people, which works out to an average of, you guessed it, about 27 bucks a piece, the familiar number from Sanders' 2016 campaign. So, Holly, start us off here with, with Bernie Sanders. Uh, he's been he's been traveling the country, right? He's been talking a lot about new policy. He's been uh, kind of revving up his his voters for uh, a potential presidential campaign. Uh, and then you reported over the weekend that he was actually, uh, but before it came out, that he was recording an announcement video. So uh, there was this big sense that this was coming, right? Can you take us inside that that preparation process from the campaign a little bit and your process of, of ferreting out that this was coming down the pike? Yeah, we sort of knew a few weeks in advance that it was coming, partly because he had went to South Carolina recently for this big trip. Obviously, that's one of the states where he was weakest in 2016. Then we started hearing word that he, if he was going to announce, it was going to be at a rally, which, of course, would make sense for him. Um, it wouldn't be his first event, but it, that would be you know, part of the announcement rollout in the first few weeks, perhaps. And so I started sniffing around and I thought, you know, he might do it in Burlington, um, of course, you know, his home. And so uh, I, I basically looked at the University of Vermont's um, website and realized that there was this special event on the calendar. Um, for uh, where they play basketball. And so I called up the University of Vermont um, and asked about it, and they basically said, I have no comment. Um, kind of jittery, a little yeah, bit, it sounds like. <laughs> definitely, they seemed a little rattled. Um, and then it was funny, they actually, uh, very shortly after I asked about this, took it off the calendar completely. <laughs> So yeah, like clearly, like the, 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 it's it's funny, and we we see there's there's like a lot of the, the pre preparation that goes into these campaigns. They they're thinking very hard about what they want that first twenty four hours, that first week to look like while while they're on the trail. And that brings us to the money, right? We mentioned before, nearly six million dollars coming in small increments uh, in in just twenty four hours. I'm sure they've blown way past that now. What seventy two hours later d- down the line, um, th- th- this is a testament, right, to to what he 
built in his last campaign, but also the work that Sanders has done to keep those supporters in a, in a state of mobilization since then. Right, Holly? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it speaks to both the fact that his small dollar fundraising team is l- largely consists of many of the same people that led it last time. So he brought on Tim Tagaras, who's like the small dollar fundraising pioneer, um, Robin Coran, too. He has this massive email list that he can tap. Um, and there were signs that he would have a really big fundraising day. Um, even recently, he sent out an email just like hinting at a run, and it raised $300,000, which is the same amount that Elizabeth Warren raised the day that she announced her exploratory committee. So there were, you know, signs that um, he would blow everybody out of the water on this, at least in this first day. A lot of latent energy there. So, Charlie... Help help us zoom out a little bit. You know how much how much has the Democratic Party changed since Sanders really came came out of nowhere to make a national name for himself in in 2015 uh, when when he was running against uh, Hillary Clinton and what does that mean for his 2020 campaign? Well, it's changed dramatically. Um, what's what's funny to think back when he first announced. I remember when he first announced at the Capitol, there were a lot of news organizations that didn't even cover it or they didn't send anyone there because he really wasn't taken very seriously in Washington. He was seen as somebody who was more of a shouter and a, he, he was he was seen as a lawmaker who said things but didn't actually do things. It yeah. was literally a sideshow that day, right? He came, he walked out of the Capitol. Like there were a lot of congressional reporters who kind of just followed him out there because they were the closest to it and they you know watched him do his Bernie Sanders thing and announce he was running for president. And then they all walked back inside and co- kept covering whatever was going on in, in, in the halls of Congress. He right. literally said something like, I don't have a lot of time here <laughs> when he started his speech. He didn't even comb his hair for, for it was his 10 minutes. presidential It was 10 minutes long. Yeah. And so it goes to show just how far he came uh, and how powerful his mus- message turned out to be. And now when you when you fast forward, uh, you, you see how dramatically he changed the party. And, it, and it's weird in a sense, because on the one hand, his chances, I think, are, you know, his odds are much worse now because the candidate, the, the field is 10 times as big. You know, his his progressive base is now going to be splintered among and lots of different candidates. There's not going to be a single safe harbor for, you know, as there were in 2016. If you didn't like Hillary Clinton, you know, you just went to Bernie. You know, so now he is facing all these other uh, pressures. Yet at the same time, the, the influence he had on the party was profound. All of the ideas that he was that promulgating in 2016, all of them are now fairly mainstream ideas within the Democratic Party. And at the time he was saying them, they were not mainstream at all. Whether you're talking about Medicare for all, whether you're talking about free college tuition, all of these things, even the idea that he might be a socialist. Remember what a scandal that was, you know, and there was all this uh, oppo dropped about, well, you know, he did once say he admitted he was a socialist. Well, then it turns out the party has moved over, uh, you know, further and further to the left. And when you take a look at polls, and this even showed in some of the exit polls in the Democratic primaries in 2016, it's socialism or to call yourself a socialist isn't considered, it's not like the red letter, uh, you know, the scarlet letter it used to be. A lot of people are like, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of comfortable with that. I'm, I'm okay with that. It used to be like taboo in American politics. Now you've got lots of folks that, you know, maybe they don't totally embrace it. Like you, you saw Kamala Harris in, in New Hampshire, some of the other presidential candidates are not willing to call themselves a socialist, but there is much greater comfort on the left with what it means and in sort of embracing that term to a, to a certain degree. 
And in their base. I mean, when you look at young voters and you poll them on socialism versus capitalism, a lot of them are more comfortable with socialism, the idea of it. So it reflects this change in, I think, the electorate also. It's a change in ideology, but it's also a, sort of a cultural change in some way. I think it's it, re, it reflects a kind of deterioration in, in the way we view ourselves as a country uh, in the sense that, you know, up until fairly recently, I think, in American politics, you could never admit that America wasn't the greatest country in the world. You would, you would, candidates would be mocked for, for embracing a, a European innovation or, you know, embracing Scandinavian style welfare systems or, or whatever it was. Now that's totally different. And it's, it's not seen uh, as, as devastating or, you know, sort of a killer issue. Natasha, let's, let's bring you in here. You know, as, as Charlie mentioned, this is going to be a very dynamic primary with a lot of, you know, multiple different candidates pushing and pulling each other for every vote as compared to 2016. But you've spent a lot of time covering one candidate in particular who has a very similar message uh, to Sanders and potentially a, a similar base of support just in terms of talking about the, the a broken system needing fundamental change. And that's Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. How, how much really do they overlap in terms of, of what they believe and how they govern and the, the potential pool of voters that they would draw from in this big Democratic primary? I mean, both of them have become sort of these dazzling icons to the left. You know, Sanders, obviously, much more so with his spectacular rallies and fundraising. Um, but Warren, too, I mean, with the, the persist stuff, um, all of her, her work um, in, in bankruptcy and as like this champion for uh, the little guy. So to that extent, I think that narr- a bigger narrative around them is is very similar. They both represent like a push against corruption, against big government, against Wall Street, all of that. So, so that overarching messaging and symbolism, symbolism is is really similar. And um, yeah, you guys were talking about supporters, and um, yeah, Bernie Sanders' early followers were actually Warren supporters. I mean, in in 2016, there was pretty robust grassroots movement to get it was it was the ready for warren and then it turned into run warren run and these progressives were trying to draft somebody to to find an alternative to hillary clinton and and then warren didn't run so when she didn't run most of those people ended up going to sanders so literally you know the 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 sanders movement started off with warren people well now he has them so she's got to kind of wrestle a lot of them back and um, I think she's she's probably seeing some of the realities of that right now. How do you think that's going to play out over over the next year? And Holly, too, I'm interested in, in kind of just just how you see. I mean, they don't seem like the the kind of candidates who are who are going to start, you know, like attacking each other necessarily. Certainly not anytime soon, this early. But but how is this kind of uh, a fight to corral maybe a similar slice of of the electorate to to grow from going to? What's it going to look like, do you, do you think? I think one thing that Sanders has going in that I don't think Warren has is this massive grassroots. So he's got this organization, Our Revolution, which is across 50 states, and it has 250,000 members. The Democratic Socialists of America, which have had these electoral wins yet recently with people like AOC, and we even saw it at the state legislative level, um, they exploded in growth after Trump was elected. And while they haven't formally endorsed Bernie yet, they're talking about it, they've laid out a game plan on how to do it, it seems extremely likely. And so he's got this kind of army that can go and like start you know, phone banking and texting and building support. And so I think he goes in with that 
I don't know how much of the, you know, run, Warren run people are still there. I'd be curious to know what um, Natasha thinks on this. But I think her, part of her challenge is going to be overcoming that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of those people are with Bernie. But um, I mean, where, where Warren's trying to wedge her way in is, you know, places like South Carolina, where obviously Sanders like just completely bombed and there's still so much animosity there for him and she has tried to really kind of you know integrate themes of social and economic justice for African Americans into her platform and and sort of embrace that more and I think that's one area you know and I think you know in the Warren world they would they would point to you know look at the rallies look at the people who make up their rallies I mean I don't think I don't think either of them have a, a, a huge diversity with respect to race um, but Warren is, is you know much more you know, there's there there are at least women and men and in Warren world would probably argue there's a lot of Sander in Sanders rallies there's a lot of young millennial men um, in general so you know, th- those are a couple of things. I think Warren will probably kind of like hanging out in the background a little more. I mean, Sanders is going to get all the attention. He's going to raise all the money. Um, he's going to be the superstar. And she's going to kind of hope to just keep building bit by bit the way she's doing right now and and hope that he is the target, that he becomes a target like he had, like he wasn't in 2016, that more mm. people are, you know, hitting him with, with negative stuff, we've seen, you know, the sexual harassment stuff percolate. Who knows what else is out there? Um, I think they're kind of hoping she will fade into the background and then just kind of come up, you know, in the end, if he's, still, if he's not standing anymore, she will be there. All right. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for talking us through that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And Holly, thanks for coming in the studio. Good to be here. Charlie's going to be sticking around with us for our next segment on a, a campaign that is not a shoestring operation, the Trump campaign, gearing up for re-election. Our next data point is 30. There are already 30 people working full-time for President Donald Trump's re-election campaign. But more important than that, it's that there are 30 people in what is a pretty corporate-looking structure, department heads, hierarchy, organizational charts, bosses who aren't Donald Trump. Definitely a departure from the way the Trump campaign uh, looked last time when it was kind of this this weird pinwheel of, of chaos. And we're going to talk about it with national political reporter Alex Eisenstadt. Alex, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Quickly on your way to becoming a regular here. Right. So, Alex, you got to look inside this burgeoning campaign operation for uh, Trump 2020, so to speak. And, and I wonder what, what stood out to you the most as you were reporting this story? Well, what I think is so interesting is, is that there is going to be a real sort of organizational chart and a real sort of traditional kind of campaign structure that they are putting together. Now, whether this actually works out or not, whether it... Uh, this actually uh, goes through over the next two years or not and, and follows through it, it is an open question. But at least what the, what the Trump people are trying to do is they're trying to put, trying to put together uh, the structure of, uh, of a real campaign. And, and, and that is a real departure from the norm for them. Uh, they are in 2016, they had uh, multiple iterations. There were several uh, leadership shakeups. It was never really clear who was in charge. Everyone was sort of operating off uh, off their own page. And now what you have is a very sort of top down structure with 10 department heads all reporting to a single campaign manager. Is this an admission on the part of Trump 
and or his his closest advisors that they kind of stumbled into this w- without maybe top of the line tactics and, and and strategy in 2016. Well, I think what it is, it's it's an admission that there are probably better ways to do things, and the way <laughs> they did it in, in, in 2016. When you're right, they kind of did stumble into uh, that, and, and and no one at first thought that Trump was even running a really a, a very serious campaign at first. Uh, and then six months in, he started winning all these primaries. So, w- what I think is 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 going to be interesting to see here uh, is you know how how this all plays out uh, in, in the months to come. But but they are developing a sort of a corporate structure filled with a campaign filled with people who have uh, prior campaign experience. And one of the interesting parts of, of reporting out this story is that I got an on the record quote actually from the campaign's chief uh, operating officer, Michael Glasner, in which he basically conceded outright that the last campaign was filled with people who were untested, who hadn't worked on presidential campaigns. And they are they're aiming for a very different kind of operation in 2020. Charlie. Uh, you, you've you've often talked on on the show about how Donald Trump was a chaos candidate in in 2016. How how does this how does this operation square with the fundamental nature of his his personality? It doesn't square at all <laughs> to me. I mean, it's almost like a, a bifurcated operation in which right. you've got the insanity on the governance wing of the White House, and then you've got this organization structure, vision, and discipline on the political side, on the reelect. You know, I don't know that they'll be able to sustain that all the way through uh, because I just don't think that, that Trump has the discipline to do that. Uh, I don't think that Parscale, uh, at the end of the day, will finish as uh, the guy running that campaign. But right now, the way it looks, it is an entirely different operation run with much more uh, organizational rigor and discipline than the uh, you know the day to day governance uh, part of the White House. And again, it doesn't you know, just because the campaign is well run, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a winning campaign. But I guess the point is that it's going to maximize his his opportunity of winning. And I get Alex. I'm curious what you think about the the question or the scenario that Charlie just posed. You know, once the president kind of shifts his focus a little bit more toward the reelect instead of the, right. the day-to-day business of the White House. Does do you think that this structure, you know, this kind of traditional corporate pyramid structure, as opposed to the, you know, the the sun god structure right, of, right. Of, of the Trump organization, right. survives, yeah, or, or yeah, does I Trump th- take a bat to it? I think the question is: Does the insanity, as to, to borrow your phrase, from the White House, does it sort of filter over uh, to the Roslyn campaign headquarters of, of, of Trump twenty twenty? And, and, you know, another thing is, you know, I've spoken with people directly about this in the White House, and, and they sort of predict that as the campaign progresses and as inevitable mistakes are, are made, because this is just what happens in any presidential campaign, it's intense, mistakes are made. Uh, the question is, are there going to be uh, collisions uh, between the White House proper and uh, the campaign, and are tensions going to develop between uh, people who are running the White House day to day and people who are running the campaign day to day? Because at some point, they're both going to have uh, decisions that are going to sort of uh, potentially collide with one another. And there's one other thing that I think is important to note here: the way that the system that had evolved over the years that both parties had used in presidential elections was a kind of a hybrid model, somewhat decentralized, but also with the national committee playing a pretty important role uh that that 
emerged for a reason. Um, and now uh, there is a tremendous amount of risk, I think, that the Republican Party is taking by operating this model because the command and control model, which is essentially what they're doing here, uh, a corporate centralized model, only works as long as Donald Trump is the party strongman with 90% approval ratings within the Republican Party. If, the, if he somehow craters in some way, there is no way that model works for re-election because the rest of the party is going to be scrambling for the exits. I don't I don't think that will happen, but there is a, you know, a, a decent chance it could if, if who knows, you know, maybe the Mueller report includes bombshells that no one could have ever envisioned. Maybe uh, his ratings, you know, drop even more. And if that happens, this model is totally inoperational. Of course. I mean, in that scenario, nothing's operational, right? You're talking about a, a scenario in which you've got an incumbent president running for re-election in an era when when people tie down ballot candidates to the party closer than ever with with historically low approval ratings. So at that point, it doesn't it really doesn't matter what kind of operation you have. So right? you're saying they're dead anyway. Well, in, yeah. in, in the scenario. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't disagree. It's a great point to make that in this era, you know, it, we're almost like a parliamentary model, you know. Yeah. But and that, that's what you're saying, I think. I mean, I, basically, the, they've made this the, the Republican Party has made this realization that Trump is the, the party leader and that they, they rise or fall right. with him. And so you, you have to you have to go all in for for your own survival, uh, whether, you know, whether you like it or not. Right. Well, I guess the, the, the question would be, it, let, let's say Trump does falter for, for whatever reason. Let's say there's a there's a Mueller report that comes out in the coming days and it includes bombshells uh, and, and, and Trump were to crater. The question, I guess, would be, could the Republican Party apparatus somehow hitch its wagon to someone else, uh, whether it's a you know, an eventual primary opponent or someone else who, who captures the nomination at the Charlotte Convention next summer? Uh, that would be the question. And I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that because what they're doing is so unprecedented in terms of literally hooking up the RNC uh, field program to the campaign field program and, and attaching those structures so closely. Great question. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Charlie, thanks for being here as always. Scott, thanks for having me as always. <laughs> All right. We're going to turn things over briefly here at the end of the show to one Nerdcast superfan. David Bachelor of Hertford in the United Kingdom, part of our overseas listening contingent, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, David. Listeners, we found David because he emailed us to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening this week. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>